0: Well, we look for our preaching text this morning to a summary of God's Word that's found in Article 34 of our Belgic Confession, which talks about baptism and the significance of baptism. But as we prepare for that, I'd like to read with you two brief passages. First, from the end of Matthew, and then from Romans 6. From the end of Matthew, these are... Jesus parting words to his disciples, to his church, as he's preparing to uh, ascend into heaven. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul writes, What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, Article 34 of our confession reminds us that we believe and confess that Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law, has made an end by the shedding of His blood of all other sheddings of blood, which men could or would make as a propitiation or satisfaction for sin. And that He, having abolished circumcision, which was done by blood, has instituted the sacrament of baptism instead thereof, by which we are received into the church of God and separated from all other people and strange religions, that we may wholly belong to Him whose mark and ensign we bear, and which serves as a testimony to us that He will forever be our gracious God and Father. Therefore He has commanded all those who are His to be baptized with pure water into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, thereby signifying to us, that as water washes away the filth of the body when poured upon it, and is seen on the body of the baptized when sprinkled upon him, so does the blood of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, internally sprinkle the soul, cleanse it from its sins, and regenerate us from children of wrath unto children of God. Not that this is effected by the external water, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, who is our red Sea through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, that is, the devil, and to enter into the spiritual land of Canaan. The ministers, on their part, administer the sacrament and that which is visible, but our Lord gives that which is signified by the sacrament, namely, the gifts and invisible grace, washing, cleansing, and purging our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving unto us a true assurance of his fatherly goodness. Putting, us, putting on us the new man, and putting off the old man with all his deeds. We believe, therefore, that every man who is earnestly studious of obtaining life eternal ought to be baptized but once with this only baptism, without ever repeating the same, since we cannot be born twice. Neither does this baptism avail us only at the time when the water is poured upon us and received by us, but also throughout the whole course of our life. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, last week, as we prepared to consider God's gift to us of sacraments, we read a passage from Genesis 17 about the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision. There was a time when any male who wanted to be part of the covenant people of God had to be circumcised, both him and every male within his household. Every baby boy born to God's people had to be circumcised eight days after being born. And those who were not given this sacrament were by that neglect essentially excommunicated from the church. Now, we don't practice that sacrament anymore. Many of the men and boys among God's people never received circumcision, and we don't think a thing about it. Instead, we insist that all of the children of the covenant, all of the members of the church, must be baptized. Those who refuse to be baptized cannot be members of the people of God. They are effectively outside the church. What happened? What changed? That we moved from the one sacrament to the other. Well, something changed. And that something warranted replacing the sacrament of circumcision with the sacrament of baptism. It remains necessary for the people of God to receive a sacrament marking them as His. But the sacrament itself has changed with baptism replacing circumcision of old. Today, we're going to consider what changed and what this new sacrament means, what it signifies. Next week, Lord willing, we'll continue by considering why our children receive this sacrament. But today, we consider baptism generally with the help of what we confess in the start of Article 34. Here, we recall how we confess that God ordained baptism to mark us as His. That's the theme that we consider. We we confess that God ordained baptism to mark us as being, being His. And that starts out by seeing that baptism separates us as a people belonging to God. It separates us, right? And that's what both baptism and circumcision have always been intended for. Circumcision marked God's people as being separated unto God in two ways. First of all, separated from the world, and secondly, separated unto God. When God gave that sacrament, it wasn't generally practiced in Palestine, in the the promised land. It's not a physically necessary thing to do. And moreover, the people who had inhabited the land of Canaan, they generally were very concerned with fertility. Most of their false gods were concerned with fertility of crops, fertility of you know, bringing forth children. And circumcision doesn't seem like something that would help in that. And so they didn't do it. And they thought anyone was a bit off who would do it. So God commanded this sacrament as something that the people around them wouldn't do. And therefore that would mark them out as separate from those other people. Separate from the the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Perizzites and all the rest. But at the same time, it separated them unto God. He promised to make them fruitful, to give them children. As many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But then he commanded a sacrament that wouldn't seem to help with that. From the perspective of man, this isn't something that you would do if you were concerned to have as many children as possible. And so they would see that if they were to receive what God promised, it would come by His blessing. It would come by the fruitfulness that He granted. And it further separated them unto Him because it came with a shedding of blood. They could only belong to God if they were circumcised. They could only be circumcised if there was a shedding of blood. In this way, it pointed forward to Christ. It taught Israel to look forward to the time when God would shed blood once for all in a way that would unite his people truly to himself by what he did, by what he accomplished. And so important was that sacrament that in Genesis 17, he told them, you shall. It wasn't an option. It wasn't something that that they could do if they wanted an additional assurance. No, no, no. He said, you shall. Keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout your generations. And he says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off from his people. It was essential that they embrace this sign and seal of his covenant. But today, that sacrament is no more. Why? Well, circumcision was closely tied to the ceremonial law of old Israel. Ceremonial law, that's the the animal sacrifices, the rites of purification, the feasts and fasts of Israel. These all were tied together as that which pointed forward. All of it involved the shedding of blood. All of it spoke of cleansing, purification, dedication. All of it pointing forward to Jesus. What He would do. The blood that He would shed. The righteousness that He would accomplish in order to restore God's people to Himself. But today Christ has already come. His blood has been shed. One sacrifice for all time. And that means the time for forward-pointing ceremonies is past. That was recognized in the early history of the church. A few weeks ago we read from Acts 15. And we saw that the church, shortly after Jesus' ascension, was divided. Because Gentiles were coming into the church. People who hadn't been circumcised, who hadn't been keeping the ceremonial law. And there were some who said, well, you know, they're going to have to start keeping that ceremonial law, right? They're going to have to start keeping the purity laws. They're going to have to be circumcised. They're going to have to do all this stuff. And there were others who said, no, no, because God called them before they received any of that ceremonial law. And God poured out His Holy Spirit on them when they weren't keeping it. And so the church gathered together and they, they sought the Lord's will through prayer and they, they recognized all of that ceremonial law. All of it pointed forward. All of it pointed to Christ. And now Christ has fulfilled it all. Christ has done everything to which it pointed. And therefore, God's Spirit led them to conclude that ceremonial portion of the law has been abrogated. It's been fulfilled. And in fact, Paul later condemned with strong words those who would continue to teach that believers must keep that law, including circumcision, because it's been fulfilled, because it's been done by Jesus. Instead of circumcision, Jesus instituted baptism as our sacrament of separation. We heard it in in our first scripture reading. This is a continuing command to the church. Jesus says, I want you to make disciples, not just of the sons of Abraham, but of all the nations. Not just of the nation of Israel, but of all the peoples. And how do we do that? Grammatically, the main verb is make disciples. And there's three commands that 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 involves. Going. In other words, you can't just stay in Canaan. You can't just stay in the promised land. You have to go into all the Roman Empire and beyond. You have to go to where all the people are. Baptizing them. That's how you draw them in and set them apart unto Christ. And then teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's what's involved in making disciples. And that central step. Baptizing. It's drawing them in. setting them apart. So baptism has the same circumcision today that circumcision did back in the the days following Abraham. It separates the people who would belong to God from the world. It devotes them unto God. And that makes it a necessary sacrament. Those who would belong must be baptized. Those who refuse to be baptized by that fact are outside the church. And so it is now by baptism that we're separated from every other people and religion. We heard that in Romans 6. No longer are we to embrace the sins that once filled our lives. Why? Because we've been separated from those sins. Those sins, young people hear this, those sins are what identify the people of the world. Right? They identify themselves by the sins that capture them. They identify themselves by their inebriation, by their their excessive drinking and drug use. They identify themselves by their possessions and by their power and by their earning potential. They identify themselves by their, their passions of the flesh. But we are identified by our baptism. We are identified by Christ. No longer are you to live... According to those sins, no longer are you to be identified by those things that once marked you, but now you've been baptized, now you've been joined to Christ, now you belong to Him entirely. In ages past, circumcision was regarded as a mark of ownership. You belong to God, your identity is bound up with Him. And that's what baptism does for us. In Matthew 28, Jesus says literally baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Into. We're brought into a relationship. We're brought into a new standing. We're given a new status. That has huge implications for how we regard ourselves. Romans 6 verses 4 and 5. We were buried therefore with Christ by baptism into death. You hear that? By baptism, you were buried with Christ into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Baptism says you are, you've been joined to Christ. You belong to Him. When He died on the cross, you died on the cross. When He rose from the dead, you entered into new life. Your life is bound up with His. Your identity is bound up with His. And therefore, baptism stands as a promise to us. The triune God will be your God forever. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. That's what God tells us to expect. By baptism, He calls us to expect that we will always live with Christ, no matter what happens to our body, no matter who attacks us, opposes us, marginalizes us, even kills us. We will live with Christ. No one can snatch us away from Him. We're His. That's why even as He gave that command, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, Immediately, he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Because you're baptized, you're mine, you're identified with me. And therefore, no one can snatch you away. I will always be with you. Baptism separates us as a people belonging to him. It shows us we're separated from the world and we're joined now to Christ. But that's not a random thing as though God could have used any right to identify us as His. Now, He designed baptism very intentionally as a means of teaching and assuring us. So the second thing we see, baptism not only separates us as belonging to God, it also symbolizes for us the power belonging to Christ. Consider for a minute, kids, consider what you see when we baptize someone. Baptism involves a ritual washing with water. Doesn't matter where the water came from, whether it comes from the faucet in the kitchen or a stream or a lake. Doesn't matter whether we pour it or sprinkle it or dunk the person. What's important is that water is placed upon that person. And along with that act, We pronounce the significance of baptism by speaking the words that Jesus spoke. I baptize you into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But what's the significance of doing that? What does it all mean? Well, it symbolizes the power that God will apply to us, which is a power that belongs to Christ. It symbolizes first His power to wash us. That image when water is poured upon the one who is baptized. It's the image of a bath. When the church was brand new in the sense of the New Testament church, most of the baptisms we see involve dunking. Why? Because that's how adults bathe. Right? You dunk yourself into water. This is before the age of showers. But then Sprinkling and pouring became commonplace. Why? Because most of the baptisms became that of children. And you generally don't dunk children. You you pour the water over them when they're that young, when they're newborns. But the symbolism is the same, isn't it? It's a bath. It's a cleansing. The Bible describes sin as that which defiles us. It makes us filthy in God's sight. But God is holy. There is in Him no defilement. There is in Him no filthiness of sin. And if we would enter into His presence, we must be cleansed of all that defilement. Baptism signifies that. It shows us that just as water washes the dirt away from our bodies, so the blood of Christ cleanses us from the defilement of sin. One is an image of the other. Water, an image of Christ's blood. The body, an image of the soul. You see, that cleansing is a big part of what Jesus was seeking when He died on the cross. Romans 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It was Jesus' crucifixion. It was His dying on the cross, His shedding of blood that cleanses us from our sin, that removes that filth from our bodies. Or consider what we heard last week in our uh I think it was last week in our Assurance of Pardon, 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's how we were restored from the sin that defiled us and kept us separated from God. Jesus' blood was shed. The Holy Spirit applied that to us and so we were washed we were sanctified, we were justified. And baptism doesn't just show us that. It doesn't just teach us about it, it assures us of it. The water with which we baptize is real water. Every time I baptize a child, watch, watch his eyes. Look at her face. As soon as that first splash of water hits, there's a, there's a jump. Because it's real water. It surprises them. It's a little bit cold. Right? And just as real as that water is, that's how real the cleansing of Jesus' blood is. We know that that water, if we scrubbed a little bit, we'd get any dirt on that skin off. And just as truly, Jesus' blood cleanses us from the defilement that would keep us separated from God. Just as truly, Jesus' sacrifice reconciles us to the Lord it not only teaches us, but it assures us, this is how real, this is how true, this is how trustworthy what Jesus has done is for you. But there's also a second symbol given to us in baptism, and that's the symbol of deliverance. Our confession reminds us of this. Two times in the Old Testament, the Bible shows us how water provides both an escape for the people who belong to God and destruction for those who aren't the people of God. And baptism recalls those times. The flood. All of humanity had descended into the depths of depravity and sin. And so God resolved to pour out his wrath upon them. And he did so by the waters of the flood. Those waters destroyed everything in which was the breath of life except except for believing Noah and his family. For Noah and his family, that water that destroyed everybody else, it saved them because it raised up the ark that God had commanded them to build up over the destruction. While the rest of the world was plunged into the punishment that God ordained for sin, the ark floated over top of it. And so the water both destroyed those who lived in their sin and delivered those who rested in Christ. And then again later, when Israel was in Egypt, enslaved, God began delivering them, pouring out works of power on Egypt, until finally they said, fine, leave, go, you're free. But then they thought again and sent the army after them. And there stands Israel locked between the army of Pharaoh on one side and the Red Sea on the other, and so God opened up the sea so that Israel could be delivered through the midst of the waters. That sea became their deliverance. A dry path along which they walked toward the promised land. But those same waters that allowed deliverance for God's people, once they had passed through, closed in on their enemies and destroyed those who were Wicked, those who were rebelling against God and His purposes. Baptism recalls both of these things. Just as Noah and his family by the flood escaped the judgment due for sin, so baptism shows us that, that God delivers us from sin by pouring out judgment on Christ. And just as the Red Sea showed how God delivered His people from their slavery and poured out His wrath on those who would keep them enslaved. So we see that the power of Christ delivers us from the slavery that once held us in sin. Even as He promises to judge those who sought to destroy us with sin, those who sought to keep us enslaved. In every respect, baptism symbolizes for us the power belonging to Christ, the power that saves us. It shows His power to cleanse us. It shows His power to deliver us. And therefore, it teaches us to trust in Him. And really, that's the last thing we need to see here. That the power shown to us in baptism, the power shown to us in this sacrament that we all receive. It's not a power that belongs to or is accomplished by us in any respect. But it shows us instead the blessings bestowed by God's Spirit. Notice, baptism shows us something. It's a symbol, but it is not the reality itself. That's where the Roman view of the sacraments erred. Through the Middle Ages, because... The sacrament wasn't coupled with the preaching of the word. They began to misunderstand what they were seeing. They began to believe that it was the washing of water itself which accomplished their cleansing. That it was the sacrament itself that accomplished the forgiveness of sin. Rome erred by confusing the sacrament with what what the sacrament showed. That's something we need to remember. That that's an error. Or we'll fall into the same Lie. Baptism is important in the life of the church and in the life of each believer. It shows us God's promise to cleanse and deliver us through Christ. It assures us of God's love and God's power toward us. God uses baptism to strengthen our faith, but that's the key. He strengthens our faith in Christ. He doesn't accomplish it through baptism. What baptism does, where its strength lies, is in showing us how Jesus applies His work through the Spirit. Notice what the Bible says about the power to which, or which baptism shows. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4 says that we have been freed from sin, not by what we've done, not by what we've accomplished. We're freed by Jesus' sacrifice. Likewise, later on in verses 8 and 11 it tells us that we've been empowered to live a new life. But again, not by what we've done, not by our strength, it's by the power of Christ to whom we've been joined. In other words, if we want the freedom and the forgiveness and the power that baptism reveals, we need to trust not in baptism and not in ourselves, but in the one whom baptism shows us. Consider again what we heard Jesus say in Matthew 28. He calls the church to make disciples, beginning that process really by baptism. But first he reveals the source of our power. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore make disciples. Therefore baptize them. Because I have all authority, because I have all power, you can do this. And then he says, I will be with you always. When you do these things, when you baptize them, when you teach them, know that I'm with you, know that I'm working through you, know that I'm accomplishing my purposes through the church. It's never about us, it's never about what we do, it's always about what Christ does. Baptism is a tool, but Jesus is the one who uses the tool to draw us near to Himself, and He does that by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 uses that language of baptism to remind us of those blessings that we need. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Those are the blessings that we need and that we receive. Washing. Being cleansed from our sins. Sanctification. Being made holy so we can enter the presence of the Holy God. Being justified. Declared righteous in the sight of God. All of those are gifts that Jesus accomplished on the cross and also before. And all of those are given to us by the work of the Spirit. Jesus sent His Spirit to justify us, giving us the faith that unites us to Christ. Jesus sent His Spirit to sanctify us, breaking off those chains of sin and leading us to begin loving His law. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to wash us. Removing the power of sin from us. Removing the stain of sin from us. Drawing us into the path of discipleship. He does it. And that shows us what our response to baptism needs to be. Understand that our response to baptism can never be I trust my baptism to save me. It can't do it. And our response must never be, well, I'm one of the baptized ones, I'm sure I'll be able to. No, not I. We look at our baptism. We see a new child or a new believer being baptized. We remember our own baptism. Our response must ever and always be, this is what Jesus promised to do for me. This is how He claimed me for Himself. This is the power He will exercise on my behalf. Therefore, in Him I trust. Therefore, to Him I look. Therefore, on Him I will always rest. Baptism must ever drive us back to Christ. Celebrating what He has done. Trusting His power to work in us on us, through us, giving Him the praise as the one who alone can restore us and draw us to Himself. Baptism must point us to Christ. And if it does, then in that sacrament, you will be strengthened, encouraged, blessed, every time you see it, to remember what He has promised to do for you. Baptism marks us as His. May that cause you to rejoice. May that give you encouragement. And in that encouragement, in that identity, may the Lord continue to strengthen you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us this sacrament as a means of strengthening and encouraging us in Christ. Help us never to forget that He is the one who has accomplished it all. That He is the one who draws us to You that we might trust Him all the more truly and completely. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.